please stay tuned to the end of this program or see the show notes for important information regarding today's speakers and the content of this podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Allergy Talk, a round of the latest in the field of allergy and immunology by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. For today's episode, we will be reviewing three more articles from the November-December 2021 issue of Allergy Watch, a bi-monthly publication which provides research summaries to college members from the major journals in allergy and immunology. My name is Jerry Lee. I'm an associate professor at Emory University School of Medicine and one of the co-hosts of Allergy Talk. I'd like to introduce my two co-hosts. First, Dr. Marin Gravilla. Hi, everyone. I'm Marin Gravilla, and I'm an assistant professor of allergy and immunology at Emory University in Atlanta. And then Dr. Stan Feynman. Hi, I'm the editor-in-chief of Allergy Watch, and I'm also a clinical faculty member at Emory and a past president of the college. So we do have a asthma-focused episode for you today. Stan, I think you are reviewing an article on the latest weapon against asthma on the block. Yeah, this is the latest biologic. It's tezapelumab, and this study is published in New England Journal of Medicine in uh, May of 2021. Tezapelumab in adults and adolescents with severe uncontrolled asthma, and it was reviewed in the November-December Allergy Watch issue by Dr. Knox. And as we know, the first phase 2B study for tezapelumab, which is a, a TSLP, a thymic stromal lymphopoietin blocking antibody, did show that it lowered the exacerbation rate in patients with severe uncontrolled asthma, regardless of the inflammatory biomarkers and also the allergic status. So this was a further study that was a phase three study and then really was instrumental in getting the drug approved by the FDA. So these were patients, it was called the Navigator trial. It was a multi-center trial. It included over a thousand adult and adolescent patients. The mean age was 49 and a half years, and these patients had severe uncontrolled asthma, and they were either randomly assigned to receive the tezapelumab at 210 uh, milligrams subcutaneously every four weeks, or placebo, and it was a one-year study. The main endpoint of interest was the annualized asthma exacerbation rate, and then there was a variety of secondary outcomes as well that were evaluated, and they were compared with patients with various biomarkers, such as eosinophils, and exhaled nitric oxide and some things like that. But the annualized exacerbation rate was significantly lower in the tezapelumab group. It was 0.93 versus 2.1 in the patients who got placebo. Patients who had blood eosinophil counts less than 300, the exacerbation rates were 1.02 versus 1.73. So even more of an improvement in the ones who had higher eosinophils. And then over the one-year period, the patients who were assigned to the tezapelumab had greater improvement even in the pre-bronchodilator FEV1, also in asthma control and the quality of life questionnaires and other types of measures looking at quality of life. And the bottom line was that the tezapelumab did reduce exacerbations in the patients with severe uncontrolled asthma. And it had other benefits, including improving lung function, asthma control, quality of life. And it was really regard of their TH2 status. Although when you look at the data and you look at the figure one, you can see that the patients who did have eosinophil counts greater than 300 at baseline did much better 
with the tezapilumab. And it's the same thing with the FENO, the exhaled nitric oxide. Those who had higher levels, the, the TSLP blocker, the tezapilumab, seemed to work even better. So there was improvement without those TH2 biomarkers, but clearly it seemed to be better if they did have that TH2 biomarker. So the role of this TSLP in mediating the TH2 response, also T17 responses through these various inflammatory dendritic type cells and between mast cells and the inflammatory smooth muscle cells are the mechanisms that they suspect are relevant in these inflammatory populations with the low eosinophil counts and maybe why the TSLP blocker, the, the tezapilumab, works in those patients. So I'm going to reference again the paper Marin presented last time that sort of suggested that we're really not good at identifying T2 high or low T2 because if you repeat the eosinophil count enough, <laughs> some of these patients are actually T2 high, right? So I just need to see more data on this. My gut tells me that something that we know deviates the immune system to TH2, that it wouldn't make sense that blocking it would help non-T2 asthma, but I'm very naive and I'm willing to learn. It's just that how well are we phenotyping T2 high and T2 low? And I'm willing to play devil's advocate with Jerry on this one because the high eosinophil group may just be those that were more persistently eosinophilic, right? Because there was a sub-analysis of one of the phase two studies on tespelumab where they looked at other endpoints like airway, the effect of tezapilumab on airway eosinophilia, as well as airway remodeling and uh, bronchial hyperresponsiveness. And in this study, treatment for tezapilumab resulted in a greater decrease in airway submucosal eosinophils. And this difference was seen across all baseline biomarker subgroups, meaning both the eosinophilic as well as non-eosinophilic subgroups based on blood eosinophilia suggesting that the effect may be due to a decrease in type 2 biomarkers itself. Hmm. I would just need to try it and see what happens, basically. Now I've been approved by the FDA, and I guess we'll all get some clinical experience in some of these patients who are non-TH2. They don't have those biomarkers. Right, right. Absolutely. Again, more to come. I think we just need weapons to help our patients. We do have patients who... We're just trying to find the best treatment for them. So I'm really excited to see if this is going to help, especially that challenging non-T2 population. So thanks, Stan, for presenting that. Marin, I think you have always presented the most interesting papers on AARD, and I think you have another one for us. So I'm really excited to hear from you. Right. So this is a paper that was published in Clinical and Experimental Allergy last year out of Poland and reviewed for Allergy Watch by Sham Joshi, and this looks at predictors of response to aspirin desensitization. This is still our mainstay of treatment for people with AERD, and it's preferably done ideally right after sinus surgery. But, and I'm sure both of you have seen this as well, the response to high-dose long-term aspirin therapy is so unpredictable. Some people do great and others not so much. And there has been postulations that this can be linked to the different subphenotypes of aspirin exacerbated respiratory disease. While this is usually an eosinophilic entity, there are other non-eosinophilic subphenotypes that have been based on induced sputum cell studies. And so the goal of this paper was to look at the clinical features as well as immune and biochemical biomarkers 
that may predict a response to high-dose aspirin therapy in ARD. And so they picked 34 ARD patients with severe asthma who underwent aspirin desensitization, followed by one year of 650 milligrams daily of aspirin. They looked at people clinically, and then they categorized them into phenotypes based on induced sputum cells as either type 2 high, type 2 low, the production of eicosanoids and other inflammatory mediators levels in induced sputum, and they also did a bunch of gene expression studies. Overall, what they found was that 28 out of these 34 people, or 82%, were classified as responders to high-dose aspirin, and this was based on significant improvements in the ACQ, SNOT22, and the FEV1. While the non-responders did not have an obvious improvement in their ACQ and their SNOT22, a significant decline in the FEV1 was found in this subgroup. But interestingly, the total LUNMICA score did not change in either responders or non-responders. And the absolute count of bloody eosinophils also did not change in responders, but actually went up in non-responders. And aligning with previous studies, there were no significant changes in eicosanoid levels in responders or non-responders. And urinary leukotriene E4 levels paradoxically increased in both groups. The major findings of this study was that a positive predictor of response to long-term aspirin desensitization included female sex, a higher baseline SNOT22 score, a higher baseline bloody eosinophil count, lower neutrophil percentages in the induced sputum, as well as higher expression of the hydroxyprostaglandin dehydrogenase gene, which has been recently actually implicated with the generation of inflammatory metabolites in AERD patients. And during long-term aspirin therapy, it has been shown to upregulate COX-2. And finally, a lower expression of a proteoglycan 2 gene. Based on these findings, they created a prediction model to help to identify patients who are most likely to respond to high-dose aspirin. And what they found was the ACT score, the SNOT22 score, bloody eosinophil count, and total IgE levels were the clinical and laboratory values that helped to predict the response, which is, I think, actually very fortunate because none of the other more intricate and elaborate parameters improved the prediction of response. And the ones that did were very straightforward and values that we just ordered routinely all the time anyway. So I think their bottom line was that the more intense the T2 profile of the patient and the more severe the baseline disease, the more room for improvement. The limitations was that this was a small study of only 30-something patients. The final dose that they used in the study was 650 milligrams daily, which is different from at least my starting dose, which is 650 milligrams twice daily, and may result in a more robust response. So in my experience, when I've used aspirin desensitization for my patients, and in fact, the ones that I'm thinking about have more females than males, but I've had a couple of males as well. And I do go up to the 650 milligram twice a day, like you recommend, but I find that they recently have been dropping the dose down 
And since we have other therapies available for nasal polyps and even TH2 type asthma have been lowering the dose of aspirin in some of these patients, and they seem to be still doing well. So I think with some of the new biologics, we may not be using aspirin desensitization as much. What is your thought on that? It's interesting that you say that because I don't know if you saw this recent network meta-analysis that was actually published in Jackie in practice a few months ago, looking at the effect of several different biologics in as well as aspirin desensitization on different clinical parameters as well as adverse events. And aspirin desensitization actually fared the poorest out of all of them. No guess, you know, I'm not going <laughs> to give you any prizes for guessing which one did the best. But regardless, I do think that it is probably going to get phased out in the near future. The only caveat is that it is still, we have the largest body of evidence with it. We, it's safe, it's very cheap. And there was another cost effectiveness study comparing dupilumab and aspirin. And the only scenario in which dupilumab was even somewhat cost effective was if it was used as salvage therapy in people who had already failed aspirin desensitization. So I wish it was much more straightforward. I think about our previous conversation, though, when to stop biologics in our last episode. So do you think there's any role of aspirin as a way to get someone off a biologic or to taper biologic? I have used that as a strategy previously, where we use a biologic as a bridge to facilitate aspirin desensitization and get patients on like controlled and long-term therapy. And with the plan thereafter, just start spacing out the biologic. Yes. I think that would be the role here just because as we talked a lot podcast, the, the price and the quality of life issues and, and, and so off. So obviously shared decision-making is key here, but as you can imagine, it doesn't surprise me that there's really good success in uh, certain biologics compared to aspirin. At least that's what I've seen, but I, I'm still thinking about that huge cost differential between it. Are we doing that in perpetuity essentially? Mm-hmm. Although aspirin is not without its side effects, you know, it definitely, I mean, 650 twice a day, some of the patients do have problems with ulcers and things like that. Yeah. So I'll usually put people on 650 twice a day for one month and then, or one to three months rather. And then based on how they're doing then, if they're better, then we step down to 325 twice a day. Yeah. Merit, again, thank you so much for that summary of, and your experience on ARD. I'm just going to change gears and review our article that's of interest to me because I love toys. I love technology. I love toys. It's just something I, I'm doing all this podcast stuff. I got to buy a lot of cool stuff to do that. And so this is talking about electronic medication monitoring asthma. And we've seen some players in this space, but the actual evidence behind it and this efficacy is sort of a moving target. I'm just going to give you one example of a paper that attempts to analyze how effective these tools are or not effective. So this is a study published, first author Giselle Mosnayam, president of the Academy. And the title of the article is The Impact of Patient Self-Monitoring via Electronic Medication Monitor and Mobile App Plus Remote Clinician Feedback on Adherence to Inhaled Corticosteroids, a Randomized Control Trial. And this was published in Jackie in Practice. So Essentially, we know the background. We know that non-inherence is pretty common in asthma, and it doesn't surprise us. Asthma 
is an intermittent condition. So there are many days the patient feels fine. And let me tell you, I've always told trainees who rotate in the asthma clinic as program director that let's say I had a severe stroke or traumatic brain injury and I lost all the knowledge I had about immunology. So I don't know what TSLP is. I don't know what IL-5 is, but the only knowledge I retained as a doctor was the knowledge of the asthma guidelines. And I had a very good ability to be persuasive for a person to take a medicine every day, even if they're well. If I had those two skills and I lost everything else about immunology, I probably would be a decent asthma doctor. I probably, I'm not saying I would be the best, but I would probably be up there if I had the communication skills to convince someone to take on medicine every day, even if they're well, because I think that that's what we're challenged with. So we asked the question, can technology help us with this? So this was a study in adult asthmatics where they were provided a electronic medication monitoring device. This happened to be the propeller device. And the way it works is essentially you would attach this device on the top of your inhaler and they attach this one to their inhaled corticosteroid and their short acting beta agonist. And what it does is, is that every time you actuate the inhaler, it will record that data and it will sync it to a application on your smartphone. So imagine that if someone is using their rescue inhaler frequently, that data could be collected and potentially signal that there is some sort of asthma flare-up. On the flip side, for their control medicine, uh, a gap in actuations of their control medication potentially could be a way to detect non-adherence and provide an opportunity to provide feedback to the patient in order to do an intervention. So essentially, they found 100 adults who had asthma that was not controlled. And essentially, they had this randomization where one group had a lot of counseling along with the app. So what they did was, is that if they noted that there was not adherence, if they noted there was worsening control, they had the ability to reach out to that family because they had this data stream in order to notify the patient and somehow do some sort of reminders to either seek medical attention if they're controlled, or again, to remind them that their adherence is sort of declining. Now, the control group did have access to the app and everything. They just didn't get that component where they had the medication reminders and the additional notifications and so on. But essentially what they were trying to determine is if you had a lot more interventions actively, in addition to the app, would it provide additional benefit? And so they, they monitored these patients. This was essentially a three-month active treatment phase with monthly phone calls in addition to either the treatment group or the control group. And what they were looking at is either reduction in their rescue inhaler use, their adherence to inhaled corticosteroids, and of course, exploratory outcomes like are they having reduction in symptoms that would suggest improvement in impairment? 
improvement in their ACT that's significant, reduction in exacerbations, and so on. But of course, this was more exploratory. This was not really the intent of the study because the small scale and so on. And then essentially what they were able to demonstrate is that the percentage of days where they did not need a rescue inhaler in the treatment group did increase significantly over the control group. And also there was a change in adherence, but unfortunately it was minimal, but there was a decrease in the control group, meaning the reason that the treatment group was better is because they sort of maintained adherence where the control group had a drop, like a 15% drop in adherence. Now, again, these sort of the exploratory outcomes like 10% improvement in their rescue inhaler use and the ACT and the exacerbations were detected in the study. And interestingly, in the same Allergy Watch issue, if you look at it, there's sort of a sister study that was published as well, looking at electronic monitoring in the European Respiratory Journal that also showed similar data stating that you do notice an improvement in medication adherence. I think the issue is proving the asthma control outcome or the exacerbation outcome. It's just hard to prove that essentially. So you have to sort of step up, take a step back and say, well, does that mean it's not helpful? Well, it's really challenging because you can imagine this is, it depends on certain factors, right? It would sort of depend on the factor on how well that is adherence a factor in their loss of asthma control, right? There's different reasons for a lack of asthma control. Does the study have a long enough period to measure an actual Influence exacerbations, very variable, but also, and Dr. Musnayam did a review article in 2022, I believe, or very recently, I apologize, after this one. And essentially, the point of that article is, is that what are you going to do with the data, right? So if we're just going to just sort of collect data and just have it available for the patient, again, if they're not adherent to using the medicine, not going to be adherent to look at the data, right? Now, if you are going to incorporate this data in a remote management program where you're going to be interfacing with the patient and communicating with the patient, then that certainly could affect outcomes because you're going to be actively interacting with the patient. Now, some of the discussions about electronic medication adherence, there's always discussion of sort of this medical legal aspect of it. So let's say there's a data stream that suggests one of your patients is not doing well. This could happen at any time. Like we don't have like people up all night and getting this data stream. And so if we receive that data, are we responsible as physicians to notify the patient? We are responsible to act upon it. And therefore their outcomes are related to receiving that information. So do we have a greater responsibility? Now, some of the approaches that attempt to address this is certain clinical decision support rules, AI, that sort of thing, where this is more automated and not requiring the active participation of the physician, also a certain understanding of the rules of engagement of how this will be used and what you can expect from a physician, what not to expect from a physician. But these are all, I think, should be discussed up front. I still think that the people who benefit from an intervention like this have to be pretty motivated and they have to recognize that non-adherence is going to be the primary reason for their loss of asthma control and exacerbations, because I don't think that that's the problem for some people. And so you're going to really need to recommend this intervention if this is something that needs to be fixed. But 
again, I'm excited to see this space grow up. I mean, people are, I got my Apple watch on now. People have their Fitbits. You know, we are in a more connected world. I think we're more interested in about our health and integration with those things and improving the patient's understanding. I would expect to eventually get us there. I think the challenge is, is that relevant to the patient? And also, how are you going to use the data is where we're going to need to get some consensus for best practices. I think that this is going to be a huge question like in the coming months slash years, because I do think that digital monitoring technology, it does have a lot of applications for asthma patients. And especially now with COVID, et cetera, it would serve as this digital sort of monitoring can serve as an adjunct to like objective testing even for shared decision-making, like you said. But I had, we've had these conversations before, I think, Jerry, and I think the main challenge for me is just how exactly we would try and integrate this data into a physician workflow and just, and how to also like, how do you ensure the quality of this data that's being constantly fed to us? Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's right. And the other thing that I found interesting about this article was that they were trying to show that one of the usefulness aspects of this type of technology is to be able to prove that the patient was in fact using their controller medications. And then if they still break through, then that could enable them to have the next step in terms of going to a biologic that might cost thousands of dollars a year. So I mean, that's another aspect of this type of technology. And you wonder if that's going to be a requirement. Oh, that's interesting. So as part of the prior authorization process, do you have evidence through an electronic monitoring that the patient took the medication? <laughs> oh my goodness gracious. Wow. <laughs> well, I'm not suggesting it. I, it was mentioned in the article. And, you know, of course, the article was funded by the people who make this device. So it's probably a lot of different kinds of use of this, but I could see that happening maybe. Okay, we're living in a new connected technological world, and I think people are going to use it for all sorts of applications. And definitely, I can imagine payers and drug companies using it for sure. So that totally makes sense to me. This was our last article for the episode, but I do want to take a pause right now and make a very bittersweet announcement that unfortunately, this is Dr. Curvella's last episode with us. Marin has been in the third chair of the podcast since the inception. I would say that her expertise in biologics and asthma and aspirin, exaspirin, respiratory disease and nasal polyps has just taught me a lot as a colleague at Emory, but also in this podcast. And not only have you taught me, Marin and Stan, you've taught so many people, the thousands of people have listened to this podcast. So I think your expertise, your way of explaining things and integrating other articles has greatly enhanced the effectiveness and reach of this. And obviously, this podcast will never be the same without you. I'm absolutely indebted for you for all the hard work you put into it. You will absolutely be missed at Emory. You'll be missed at this podcast. And But I know you're on to greater things and you're going to do amazing things in your next position. But I just wanted to thank you. And I hope everyone listening also recognizes the immense contributions that she made. I don't know, Stan, if you wanted to add anything to that. I do. I appreciate the opportunity. I think that the fact that Merritt has got a a wonderful way of communicating and educating. I've learned so much from her. 
and she will be missed here and we wish her luck in her next venture. Oh my gosh. Thank you both. Um, this has just been such a great experience for me, like doing this for, can you believe I've been doing this for three years now? I can't imagine it's been three years. That's crazy. Honestly. Yeah. I still remember the first day we all sat together and recorded this, like it was March or April, 2019, I think April, 2019. And that was the first episode. And it's just been such an honor for me to do this with such illustrious and just wonderful people like you, Jerry and Stan. And I'm, this is probably what I'm going to miss the most about the transition. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, obviously this is not going to be the last we hear from Dr. Travola. I would say that stay tuned on to the future of Allergy Talk. We absolutely will make an announcement on how we're moving forward. But if you do enjoy listening to this podcast, again, I just want to remind you that it does help us if you rate us on iTunes and leave a comment. We also want to hear your feedback, corrections, and suggestions. Please email us at allergytalk, one word, at acaai.org. And then come to our website if you, again, want to learn more information from the Allergy Watch publication. Have a wonderful day. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>